0: Father, it's such a great privilege we have to come together to study Your Word, to to be strengthened and encouraged, and to s- discover so many wonderful uh, doctrines in Your Word, so many wonderful principles to live our lives by. That that only in Your Word can we find a a path to real stability in life and to real uh, <clears throat> real joy in our souls, despite circumstances, apart from circumstances, based upon the certainty of your immutability, your faithfulness, and your love for us. Father, we're thankful this week because yesterday at the Good News Club, we had a uh, little boy who uh, came to understand the gospel and trusted in Christ as his Savior. We're just so thankful for that. And we continue to pray for all these other uh, boys and girls who are there that uh, you would just make the gospel very clear to them. And this will be just the beginning, the first fruit of a tremendous harvest at Cedar Brook Elementary. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the things we study and to be challenged by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And tonight we're starting a new section in Romans. And this gets into a section related to Uh, What, unfortunately, a lot of theologians have divided into the the practical section of Romans. It's really unfortunate the way theologians, and this has gone back for some time, talk about a lot of Paul's epistles, because there's a pattern. Galatians is this way, excuse me, yeah, Colossians, excuse me, Ephesians is this way, Ephesians 1 through 3, gives instruction about the Christian life that's usually labeled as doctrinal. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 is labeled as application. Romans, it's the same way. Romans 1 through 11 is labeled as doctrinal, and Romans 12 through 16 is labeled as application. Several other epistles of Paul follow that pattern. To me, that's a problem because what happens is that it creates the impression that doctrine isn't, is separate from application. Doctrine that isn't applicational isn't biblical doctrine. And application that isn't doctrinal isn't biblical application. Doctrine has been given this sort of uh, restricted and narrow meaning to refer to that which seems to be to some more abstract theology as opposed to practical principles for the spiritual life. That's a false use of the word doctrine. There are many areas in life and many different disciplines in life. The military is one area where the word doctrine covers everything from the initial theoretical design of something all the way through to its final application out on the battlefield and that's how the word doctrine is really used in in scripture because the the root word didaskalos in the greek is just teaching or instruction and we're instructed about god we're instructed about salvation we're instructed about justification we're instructed about how to apply those principles it's all instruction and that's what the word doctrine describes and so uh <clears throat> i prefer to think about this In terms of reality and responsibility, what usually goes under the concept of doctrine is really Paul teaching the nature of reality, the nature of God or the nature of salvation or the nature of whatever the area is. And then in the latter part of the book, once we understand the nature of reality with respect to different areas of revelation, then he talks about what our responsibility is in light of that reality. And so Romans 1 through 11 has been a discussion of the reality of God's righteousness and how God's righteousness relates to the human race. And now in light of that, in the latter part of Romans, we're going to talk about the responsibility of the believer in light of the truth, in light of the realities explained in the first 11 chapters. And even in the first 11 chapters, there are many places where Paul talks about the immediate application of those principles, justification sanctification. There was much there that was related to application. So we create this false dichotomy, and I think that's just one of the ways in which human viewpoint, which is just a manifestation of Satan's thinking, seeks to separate the Word of God from day-to-day significance in people's lives. And I think that's what's happened in the evangelical church over the last hundred years, and it's it's created this, this tendency for people to Uh, Think of doctrine or theology as something sort of abstract but it doesn't really relate to everyday living. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the lesson today, uh, as it's this this false separation. Theology is up here, but I live down in this everyday area, and there's, there's a disconnect between the two. And for many Christians, that's a reality, because over the generations in the last 100 to 150 years, uh, pastors have fallen prey to that kind of a thinking so that, that that if you go to a church that's talking about application all the time, you get something like you find in these motivational churches, people feel good, they they learn positive thinking, they learn some establishment principles, and they get all revved up to face another week, but they're never really taught anything about the Bible. And then there are some churches that you go to where the Bible is taught and theology is taught, but it's never really connected to -to day-to-day living. And people live with sort of an academic disconnect from the day-to-day issues of life, whereas Scripture teaches that and shows us that anything we learn about God is intensely practical. So real theology, biblical theology, is always going to be intensely practical. Now, you may not be able to draw the connection and connect the dots, but sound biblical theology is always intensely practical. And any practical principle of, of application can never be separated from its theological foundation. And you've heard me and you've heard some others uh, make the comment that if we were to ask the Apostle Paul how to brush our teeth, he would start off with Genesis 1 about how God formed, and Genesis 2 about how God formed man's body from the dust of, of, of the earth and the chemicals of the soil, so that we would have a proper and biblical understanding of the significance of the body, and then the responsibility to take care of the body that's created and uh, it's part of mankind, and is the whole of which is created in the image and likeness of God. So we have to understand things in their proper place and proper structure. So we have to understand, when we talk about doctrine, that this must be understood uh, as God's instruction about every aspect of life, and the purpose of that instruction is to teach us how to think with the result that it changes how we live. If we change how we live without changing how we think, then we end up being like the Pharisees who are who called by Jesus, whitewashed sepulchers. There's just an external change, but there's no internal transformation. And that's at the heart of this, the opening verse that we have in Romans chapter 12. But in light of this challenge, and this is one of the most challenging verses, uh, pair of verses in the scripture, and I think that this is where we get, at least in my thinking, more and more over the last ten years, this presents the essence of the pastoral mission, and especially in verse 2. Now, I ran across a quote the other day. It was in a... In, the, in a forwarded email, someone who, with whom this had originated is a military officer, a retired military officer, and he included this as sort of a, a quotation underneath his signature on the email, and it's a quote from Heraclitus, who was an ancient Greek philosopher, but it also states something very significant that I think applies to the local church in many ways. It's a great challenge. Where do you fall within this quote? He says, of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. He's talking in military terms, but there's an application of this to the church. Of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are nothing but targets. Nine are real fighters. We're lucky to have them. They make the battle. Ah, but the one. One of them is a warrior and he will bring the others back. Now, I have had the philosophy of ministry for years that I'm in the business of producing people who would fit in those ten, the nine who are the fighters and the ones who are the warriors. Uh, many pastors waste their time, and truly it is a waste of time because the, the, those other 90 never, ever get the picture And I've known pastors who will spend all their time trying to get the 90 to wake up and ignore the other 9 or 10. And what the church is all about, and we're going to see this increasingly in our study in Matthew, what the Christian leadership is all about is making disciples. And the challenge in the Gospels of what a disciple is ought to make all of us sit up and pay attention because it's not something easy. A, a disciple isn't just somebody who's a casual student or who just seems curious about the Word of God, although that's often where we start. I think everybody who becomes a serious, committed disciple, and the word disciple means a learner, not just somebody who's learning and filling up their doctrinal notebooks with information, but is being transformed according to the principles of Romans 12.2 internally, where their thinking is being radically overhauled and renovated by the Word of God. And you you sort of have to start off with a mindset that you want to be one of those ten, you don't want to be one of the ninety. Because if you're one of the 90, you're just, like like the quote says, you're either a target or you shouldn't be there. And sadly, if you take this and extrapolate it to Christendom, I think that fits. I think in this congregation, I think in some other congregations that I'm familiar with, these percentages are are skewed. We have many more who are fighters and who are seeking to be the warriors than, than not. But that also means that you have many churches, churches composed of a 1,000 people, and most probably 2,500 of them shouldn't be there, and the other 2,500 are targets, including the pastor. And nobody is a fighter or a warrior. And that characterizes too many congregations in, in, in the American church today. We make up for a little bit of that because I do believe we have people in this congregation, people who listen online, who are serious about their spiritual life, and they want to step to the plate to be um, to be counted among those who have been faithful in their Christian life and those who have, have been used by the Lord and those who have truly wanted uh, to serve the Lord. So the question is, what do you want to be? And this is the real challenge that we'll see in the scriptures of being a disciple. And there are a lot of people who wanted initially to be disciples. If you trace that through uh, the gospel, you see that there are thousands who are the casual, curious disciples that show up to listen to Jesus. But as he starts to make clear what is involved in being a true follower of Jesus, and remember the command given to the disciples, and to the original disciples, and it is applied to all the uh, leaders in the church, all the pastors, is that we're to make disciples. That's, that's our responsibility, is to challenge people to be disciples. Jesus' responsibility is to build the church. Our job is to feed the sheep and to make disciples and let Jesus worry about how he's going to build, build the church. But what we need to do is lay this challenge out there. Uh, do we want to just be casual, curious believers? And remember, when you get to passages like John 6, as people understood what Jesus was saying, they just went their own way. They just walked away. They didn't hang in there because they really didn't want to do what it took to be a disciple. Now, I think of all the passages in Scripture that summarize the challenge and the, the the structure of the Christian life and what the Christian life is all about, what the pastoral ministry is all about, is in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul begins by saying, "...I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service." And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, I think that there are some things in this verse that are a little antiquated, especially in the King James Version. Words like beseech are a little uh, difficult for people to comprehend today. Holy is a word that's been So overused that most people don't understand what that means. The phrase reasonable service, as it's translated in the New King James, doesn't quite capture what the Greek says. But I'm not sure that anything, any single words in English really capture the sense of what the Greek is trying to communicate. Verse two is really a contrast verse one. Verse one tells us that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, and in contrast, we're to not be conformed to the world. That's how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, is by not being conformed to the world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So let's get into this. A lot of application from this, but I think we need to understand the translation and understand just what is being said before we go very far. At the very beginning, we have Paul making a very strong personal statement. He says, I beseech you. Now, beseech is just an old English word, and it translates the Greek word parakalo or parakaleo, which means to encourage, to strengthen, to come alongside. It has the idea of urging, exhorting, comforting, or challenging someone uh, to a particular course of action. This is the uh, significance of that word. Uh, Paul isn't, it's, it doesn't go quite as far as saying, I command you to do this, but because it's recognizing that the reader, the listener, which is, in the first century, was the Roman church, but by extension that's each one of us paul is talking directly to me he's talking directly to you and he's saying i'm giving you this challenge but you're the one who has to make up your mind whether or not you're willing to accept the challenge whether or not you're some of you are just willing to be d minus students others of you are just your uh, b minus is okay but the ones who are really the focal point of ministry are the ones who want to be A-plus students. And so this is a challenge to them. It has the idea of of uh, pressing somebody, pre- pushing them, impelling them to a particular course of action to challenge them to do something. So I would translate this, I challenge you, I urge you. It, there's a sense of, of of impending disaster if they don't do this because they'll come under divine discipline and they'll destroy their life or destroy their spiritual life. And he addresses them as brethren because he views them as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I I challenge you on the ground or on the basis of the mercies of God. And the word here translated mercy is the Greek word akirmos, which is uh, in the plural... And he's talking about the manifold grace of God in his life. Uh, this is the ground for his, um, his urgent exhortation, is that uh, God's mercy has been manifest in his life. God's saving grace has been manifest in his life. Is, and he's talking about the grace of God at the cross that provided a free salvation for us. He's talking about God's free provision of his word to us, and he's talking about God's provision of God the Holy Spirit to us to empower us and fill us with his word. And so all of these are part of that concept of the mercies of God. And he uses the uh, structure in the Greek, it's a dia plus the genitive like we have in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's talking about the intermediate means or the ground or basis uh, for something. Now we have passages like uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, where Paul says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He views God and God the Father ultimately as the source of mercy in terms of his plan of salvation and his plan for the spiritual life. So he draws a connection uh, by, by, by basing his challenge on the mercies of God. He's drawing a connection back to everything that he has said in the first eleven chapters. That is reinforced by the fact that he uses the word therefore. Well, as those of you who've been in the Bible study methods class know, whenever you see a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. And this is a conjunction that draws an inference or conclusion. It's the Greek uh, it's the Greek conjunction un, which is one of the strongest inferential uh, conjunctions, and it's not just referring to what it was just stated in Romans 11 or Romans 9 to 11, but really on the basis of everything that had been said before. So when you take the therefore along with this further statement on the ground or on the basis of the mercies of God, that all takes us back to the this wonderful exposition that Paul has given us of god 's wonderful grace in salvation and in justification in providing uh, God the Holy Spirit in the baptism by the Holy Spirit which which frees us from the tyranny of of the uh, sin nature all of this is the manifestation of the mercy of God so on that basis because we've seen this wonderful manifestation of the mercy of God and this is seen even in Romans 9 through 11 in God's treatment of Israel that this has a a a natural consequence and that natural consequence is that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice now, the concept of presentation here is expressed through the word parishtami. Paristemi" par is grammatically an active infinitive, and infinitive is, is frequently used to express purpose or result. And so Paul wants, he's stating that he's urging them that this, the result of his challenge is that we engage in action that the reader and that you and I engage in a particular action, and that is to present our, our bodies as a living, uh, living sacrifice. Now, as we look at this word, we recognize that it is a word that was commonly used to express the act of bringing a sacrifice to the altar, a living sacrifice that, of course, would be killed but what Paul is talking about here is not, a, it is like a praise offering where there's not a death, but there is something given to the Lord in response to what he has done that is a sacrifice. So we need to talk about the word sacrifice, but first talk a little bit about the verb here. This is the same word that's used in Luke 2.22 when, uh, Jesus uh, human parents brought him to the temple to present him and to consecrate him or to set him apart for service uh, at a week after he was born. It's also used uh, frequently of offering sacrifices. Josephus tells us that this was a, a technical term for the offering of sacrifice, and it's used of the Christian presenting himself to the service of God in Romans six thirteen through 16, which we'll look at in just a minute. So this isn't the first time that Paul's mentioned this concept. He's, he's going right back to connect what he's saying here to the foundation that he's explained already in relation to the spiritual life in Romans chapter 6. Uh, it's also uh, uh, related to God presenting the saved. So it, what we are to present then... To God is our bodies. Now, there's a couple of different ways that we might take that. First of all, we could take it literally, and this is a problem you would have if you were thinking in terms of Greek culture, uh, that there's a distinction, a harsh dis- distinction between the, the body, the material part of man, and the soul and spirit and the immaterial part of man. But Paul's not talking about just a bodily sacrifice. See, part of the problem that you have from Greek philosophy is that they would create certain uh, artificial distinctions in the composition of man. Under Platonism, they put such an emphasis on the immaterial part of man that the material part of man was not really that important. And so th- they would emphasize things like what's really important is your soul. But see, the Lord created man as a unit, as a body, that's as, 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 as where the body was specifically uh, designed by God uh, for a purpose. So we can't go in and say, well, the soul is the real you. That's pure Neoplatonism when people say that. The soul is the real you. Because the Bible emphasizes the value of both the material and and the immaterial, uh, Platonism says the material is not that important. What's important is the soul. That has tremendous problems with it. There are implications to that that are that that we and baggage we don't want to deal with. So what Paul is emphasizing here is the body, but he doesn't just mean the physical body. He could be that was the first option is to think of, that he's just talking about a bodily or material sacrifice, or second, that Paul is using the body as a figure of speech, as a figure of speech where the body is used to represent the whole of the person. This is called a synecdoche of a part for the whole. That's the technical term of this kind of a figure of speech. It's where you talk about a part of a thing and it involves all of the thing. Uh, The fact that the body includes all of you is indicated by the fact that you can't have your body go someplace without taking your soul with it. There is a unity there. And if you think about it, the soul never, ever has an existence without a body. How can you see without a body? How can you hear without a body? How can you experience all of the uh, sensual feelings if you don't have a body? Even in the interim state. We have the story in Luke, I believe it's in Luke 16, where you have uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus is a beggar outside the gates of the rich man who is never named The fact that Lazarus is given a name indicates that this isn't simply a parable. It is a story about a real person. Parables, if you read all the other parables, uh, they uh, just talk about there's a rich man, there's there's a, a landowner, there are servants, it never names them. The fact that there is an an individual identified with a specific name indicates that Jesus is talking about a specific situation and a specific reality. So that when Lazarus died, he goes uh, with the Old Testament saints to an area called Abraham's bosom, which is in Sheol. Sheol is divided into two compartments. The New Testament word for it was Hades. It was divided into two compartments, the compartment for the righteous, which was known as Abraham's bosom or paradise, and then there was another area known as torments. The rich man was not a believer, so he died and he went to torments. While he's in torments, he can look across this this great chasm or gulf that is between torments and uh, pa- uh, paradise and he sees Abraham on the other side and he begs Abraham that that Lazarus that can take his finger he's got a finger, can't dip your finger in the water if you don't have a finger dip it in the water and put it on his tongue because he is thirsty he's burning up. So all of this indicates there's something something there. It's not the present material corporal body, but it is an interim body. After the resurrection, there's a resurrection body. There's even a res- some sort of uh, body for the unsaved. And it is through the body that the soul is able to interact with what surrounds it. Without the body, the soul would just be blind and deaf and speechless. So... The body is important, and theologians from the first century, from the Apostle Paul, have understood and taught the importance of the the body for the composition of man. It's very much against the Neoplatonic idea. So he uses the term body here to represent the totality of each person. Uh, some translations come along and translate this as yourself but it's th- that's open to interpretation paul is talking about body soul and spirit here he's talking about the entire makeup of the regenerate believer and so uh he's talking about the fact that the that the that the body is important he's done this already in romans 6:13 that we're dire- uh the body is uh, can be an implement of righteous, uh, righteousness in 6.13, that the body is a member of Christ. This is taught in 1 Corinthians 6.15, that the body is a temple, uh, made a temple by the Holy Spirit for the indwelling of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, which sanctifies or sets apart the body, the physical body. And so uh, the body is important, the body is significant. So he says that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The fact that it's a living sacrifice means that this is something that is going to endure. This is going to continue. That's uh, indicated also uh, by the uh, present tense. Of the verbs. Now, the aspect of presenting your body is an aorist infinitive. The aorist infinitive is simply presenting it as a, as a single action. It's not a single one shot decision, though. That's how uh, people taught this who weren't well schooled in Greek. Uh, when it comes to the aorist tense, it used to be taught a lot that this, is, this was a punctiliar action, that this is uh, uh, like a one shot decision. That's not what it means. It just means uh, when when you're talking about the aorist tense, it's talking about it just. It, it's a summary tense. It's taking a, a a lot of action and summarizing it as one point. Not that it's is one point. So that uh, an aorist infinitive is simply expressing that as a as as one important action but Paul recognizes through the use of the present tense in other places that this is something that goes on and on we don't just make a one-shot decision and that's it every single day we have to reinforce that uh, particular decision now this concept of presenting ourselves to God is clearly stated in passages like Romans 6:13 6, to 16 in Romans 6.13, Paul says in the negative, do not present your members. See, that's representing your body. That's a physical term. Do not, rep, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. See, in contrast, Romans 12.1 is saying you're supposed to present your body, the members of your body, as service to God. In contrast, you're not supposed to present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Why? Because in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the tyranny of the sin nature is broken. And so we're no longer to, we're no longer in the position of being a slave to sin. If you are enslaved to sin, it's because you put yourself back in that position. We're not to do that. We have been freed from the power of the sin nature, though we still have the presence of the sin nature. We don't have to yield to it. That was another antiquated term. You read Lewis Berry Chafer's little volume on He That Is Spiritual and he talks about yieldedness, and that was a catchphrase that came out of the victorious life movement at the end of the 19th century, but yieldedness was just another way that they used to talk about presenting yourself to God. It's the presentation of something to a superior for his use, and so we are not to present our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but we're to present ourselves to God for his service, because he's the one who's made us alive. We're to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and our members, that's the members of our body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? He explains in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Verse 15, he says, draws another conclusion. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Well, no, certainly not. And then in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? you got two options. You're either going to, at any given moment, you're either presenting yourself as a slave to obey your sin nature, or you're presenting yourself as a slave to serve God. One or the other. There's no in-between. When you're presenting yourself to do what you want to do, when I present myself to do what I want to do, and I'm just serving my own little uh, selfish desires and needs, I'm just serving my sin nature, because the primary focus of the sin nature is on the self. And uh, so what, what Paul says is that we need to learn that we're either serving our sin nature, we disguise and say we're doing what's good for me, uh, or we're serving God. It's an authority issue. It's always It boil, always boils down to an authority issue. Are we going to Obey God or obey or, or just do what we want to do. <clears throat> now, back to Romans 12.1. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, when we look at this in terms of the Greek, uh, the last phrase is describing categories related to service not related to the sacrifice the sacrifice is is not a sacrifice in in the sense that we're going to feel like we're just suffering like we're giving something up you know some people get the mistaken notion that sacrifice means that you're 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 giving something up Uh, actually not you're not giving anything up you're accepting the authority of god in your life which means you're going to have the fullness of life that Jesus promised. You're not giving up anything. But that's what a sacrifice is in the Old Testament imagery. It is giving something to God. It is not, does not have the primary idea of, of suffering through some sort of pain or discomfort. It is giving something over to the service of God. That's what a sacrifice is. It's being given to serve God, not to serve our own desires. So for many people, that's what makes it suffering is because we just don't want to give it up. We just don't want to let God uh, use us in the way he would use us. We want to live life on our own terms. So this is what is addressed in these uh, next two words, Hagias, which is translated holy, a word that, that is a good word, but it's so overused and abused that most people don't know what it means. The core meaning of holy is to give something to the service of God, to consecrate it or set it apart for the service of God. It doesn't have the idea of moral purity. That's a secondary idea in many contexts, but it's not the primary idea. How do we know this? We know this because a form of the word hagias is used to describe the uh, male and female prostitutes who served in the fertility religion of the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, they certainly weren't morally pure as male and female uh, r- religious prostitutes, but they were given over to the service of their god. Same thing can be said about the inanimate objects that were part of the worship in the tabernacle and the temple. The uh, the bowls that were used, the laver, the altar, all of these are, are impersonal. They're inanimate. They can neither be moral nor immoral. A piece of metal can be neither moral nor immoral. A piece of wood can be neither moral nor immoral but it can be set apart to the service of God. That's what makes them holy, is that it's set apart to the service of God. It's set apart for a divine purpose. This is why uh, the land of Israel has been called the Holy Land. I remember going going to uh, Israel on the first trip, and somebody on the trip said, why do they always want to call it the Holy Land? And I said, Uh, Because they had always heard some pastor denigrate that term because uh, for some reason he didn't think it was special and he knew better. Holy means set apart. It's the only piece of real estate on the earth that's set apart for God's people, for God's purpose. That's what makes it holy. It is a set apart piece of real estate and so that's why it is accurate to refer to it as a holy land even though most people think that that means it's something special and you always get these people who have the Jerusalem syndrome they end up uh, they come into Jerusalem and all of a sudden they have all kinds of uh, mystical experiences and they end up in the uh, insane ward at some hospital in Jerusalem thinking they're the messiah or peter or abraham or david or something like that and that really happens people just flip out when they, some people flip out when they go, go over there, thinking it's something something special. It is in one sense, but it's not a mystical type of special. So when we present ourselves to God, what we're saying is, God, I want my life to be used by you. I want to serve you. I want your will, not my will, accomplished in my life, because I understand that I was saved and redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose is to serve you. So that's the idea of the fact that we are to be a living sacrifice, set apart to God, acceptable. That's the word uh, euristos, or evaristos, as it's pronounced in modern Greek, meaning something that is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's acceptable and pleasing to God because it is functioning as God intended us to function. He saved us to serve him. And so it's pleasing to him because we're doing his will. So, uh, and this is then described as our reasonable service. Now, this two-word phrase is one that is difficult to translate into English because we don't really have words that are that fully capture the, the the translation. The word reasonable, it's translated reasonable, is the Greek word logikos. It's a hard G. We would soften it if we brought it into English and we pronounce it logikos or logic. That's where we get our word logic. It has something to do with thinking something through from its foundation to its conclusion, to to reflect upon it. It's something that is logically derived from a certain set of assumptions. Now, what this is showing is that the Christian life is to be a life based on thought, not a life based on emotion, not a life based on a response to some kind of emotional appeal or a feel-good sermon. But it is something where people are taught to understand what God has done for them, as we've done, as we've gone through the first 11 chapters of Romans, That God had a plan for salvation, that he sent his son to become a human being, to go to the cross, and to die on the cross as a substitute for every human being, to bear in his own body on the cross the punishment for our sins. So that we could have freedom from sin and forgiveness of sin by simply trusting in him and his substitutionary death. Now, once we come to understand all that God has done for us, and we reflect upon that, and we realize that by believing in Christ, uh, we become identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are given a new life in Christ, then the logical consequence of understanding that is that we should live that new life in service to God. So the idea using the word logikos here is, brings us to the fact that a person should reach this point through a logical consideration of all that God has done for them with the result that they recognize that they are to live to serve God and not themselves. The second word there, uh, service, is the word latreia. Now, this isn't your normal word for worship, which is a word that has more of the idea of uh, uh, of bowing the knee. this is the other another aspect of worship, which is service. It's not emphasizing the submission to authority side, which the other word emphasizes, but it's emphasizing the service side. So it's a service of worship. It is serving God uh, with our life. That's why it's a living ongoing sacrifice because we're serving god rather than des- the desires of our sin nature now the sentence ends there in english but it really doesn't end there in greek it continues that the thought of the second verse grows out of and develops from the first verse and here we read the command do not or the prohibition do not be conformed To this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's a reason for that, and that is that it demonstrates something. It puts something to the test. The word proof there is dokimos, which has the idea of not just not the sense of just proving something, but it's like in a laboratory, you're demonstrating the truth of something through your life. And so, and it's not just testing in the sense of testing for testing's sake, but it's testing to demonstrate the the, the quality of something. Well, there goes my phone. Somebody's not paying attention. Um, that you may demonstrate what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Or, as I prefer to translate it, you demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. It's demonstrated through our life. So let's just look at the first part of this. The first part, we have a present passive imperative. Present imperatives emphasize sort of a standard operating procedure in the Christian life. Whereas an aorist imperative is more like a a, a jab to, to get our attention, emphasize a priority a present imperative emphasizes something that is to be continually a reality in our life. It's an ongoing characteristic in the Christian life. So we're not to be conformed. The word suschematizo has the idea of not being pressed into a mold of something. So the picture is that that we have a, we have our sin nature, but there's something outside of us that is pushing us to conform to this preset mold uh, of the, the world environment around us. We're not to be conformed to this world. I'll talk about world in just a minute. But instead, we are to be transformed. So the word there uh, from schema is emphasizing really more of an external conformity, Whereas the other word, metamorpho, emphasizes an internal transformation. It, too, is a present passive imperative. We don't transform ourselves. There's something else acting upon us that brings about that transformation, and that's the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and we learned that from other passages. It changes us from the inside out. It's not just an external transformation. So we're transformed. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our emotions, right? No, that's not what it says. But that's what you think if you look at a lot of Christians because they've given up on rationally defending the Scripture. They've given up on believing the uh, infallibility and inerrancy of the Word of God. They, they don't believe it's historically accurate. They don't believe it's scientifically accurate. They don't believe that when it touches on things of, of, of history or or archaeology or science that, that it's right. It's right in the spiritual things. But remember, Jesus said, since we can't validate the spiritual things, the way that we know that it's true spiritually is that when he talks about the things that we can validate, it's always true. And, and so the modern man, as usual, gets everything turned inside out so we have to we believe in the word of god and and trust in the word of god and that changes our thinking not our emotions and it is by transforming the way we think not just what we think but how we think it's not just changing the content of our thinking but the structure, the forms in which we, w- that we use to think. We can think right thoughts in a wrong way. And a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And I've seen this happen a lot of times. You get a, certain types of people who are saved out of an existential mystical background, which is typical in hippies coming out of the 60s. And they get converted, uh, and they hear the gospel, and they hear the true gospel. And they get converted through some sort of ministry of a charismatic church, but see charismatic theology is basically existential mystical theology, so they they, they get they don 't have to change their world view at all they 're still existential and mystical, but they go from being in a charismatic uh, i mean going from being in a pagan environment. To charismatic theology, they change the content, a lot of the content of their thinking, but it's still within the same structure of existential mysticism. And it doesn't do them much good because it's, st- it's a right thing now, but it's done in a wrong way. So we have to learn how to think differently. And as one of my professors in seminary said so wisely at one time, um, it's hard enough to think but it's really difficult for us to think about our how we think to analyze our own thought forms and and structure that because that, that gets really tough, but that's what we have to do. Unfortunately, it's not ultimately up to us. We have God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. Now, we're not to, supposed to be conformed to this world, and the word that is translated world there is not the word you might expect. The Greek word that is normally translated "world," such as "for God so loved the world," is the Greek word "cosmos," which is sometimes could be translated "earth," but it's, it ultimately refers to an order, orderly or organized system. And often it refers to the earth. Sometimes, as in John three sixteen, God loved the world. That is the inhabitants of that system. Uh, that is what we would uh, normally think of. But ion is a time word. Uh, it, it, sometimes it's translated age. But each age of Earth's history is characterized by different thought forms. Worldliness or cosmic thinking based on the word cosmos often talks about how human beings think a certain way that is in contrast to God's way. What own emphasizes is that this is related to a certain time frame or a certain period in history. If you just think about the history of ideas, we know that there was a, a time before philosophy, before Greek philosophy, when uh, things were rather uh, emphasized the fact of uh, it was more of a supernatural, superstitious idea of how, how things worked and the nature of reality, And then the Greeks came along and began to transform that into ways that tried to remove any religion or supernatural ideas or superstition. And you had the pre-Socratics with Thales and Anaximander and Anaximenes. And then you had uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides. And then you had uh, Plato and Aristotle and then the Neoplatonics and others, the Stoics and the Epicureans that came along. And in each age, there's a shift in the way people thought. You get into the period of Christianity. People thought. Some people thought according to the Bible. But a lot of early Christians were still thinking within the structure of Neoplatonism that characterized much of the early church. It wasn't biblical Christianity. It was a Neoplatonic interpretation of Christianity. Until you get to the uh, Middle Ages around the 11th or 12th century, and there's a rediscovery of Aristotle uh, under uh, people, most notably Thomas Aquinas and, uh, and some others, Bonaventura and some others. And when they uh, but then they had an Aristotelian interpretation of Christianity. And it wasn't until Luther came along and uh, argued for the Scripture alone that you had a genuine back-to-the-Bible movement that gave birth to the Protestant Reformation. But then it's not long before Europe gets corrupted again by secular forms of the ancient uh, rationalism of Plato, now the rationalism of Descartes, and the empiricism of Aristotle becomes the empiricism of, of Berkeley and and Hume and uh, Spinoza and some others. And then you get in, or excuse me, Spinoza was a rationalist. Then you get into the post kantian era. So each era is characterized by different ways of thinking. And we live in one of those eras where uh, most people have one leg in one era and the other leg in another era. One leg's firmly planted in modernism, and the other leg is firmly planted in postmodernism. And so they have a really jumbled way of thinking. But that's the spirit of the age. That's what this word I own is talking about. It's the zeitgeist is the German word. It's the the common way in which people think. And it's gotten really screwy. And if you look around, many of you wonder and ask me questions like, what in the world is going on? Well, people are working out the implications of their assumptions. And these assumptions got firmly embedded within Western culture as a result of Darwin, as a result of Freud, as a result of Herbert Spencer, as a result of Marx, and uh, and many others. And ideas that were on the fringe 150 years ago are now the the embedded so deeply in, in the thinking of the uh, uh, children running around the ghetto that they're you know they're existential nihilists and they can't even say the word. But that's what they are, and they're postmodern relativists, and and they use this. They know how to work those systems, and they think that way. And your children are that way, and your grandchildren are that way, and that's why you wonder where in the world are they getting these ideas. And they just sort of absorb it from the culture, and they pick it up. Why? Because they've got a little cultural magnet inside of them called the sin nature, that just uh, just attracts these ideas. And their sin nature just loves those ideas because it gives them a rationale for self-serving. And we're not immune from that. Just because you've been around for a while and just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you're not immune from this same kind of thing. We all are, are very prone to falling into the trap because that's our sin nature and it gravitates to these different kinds of thought forms. So this is, this is the command to us. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we have to be transformed by the renovation or overhaul of our thinking. The word there for renewing is the word anakinosis from kino meaning, uh, to renew. And it has to do with a transformative overhaul. And the word mind is the word noose, which has the idea of a thought or an attitude or a manner of thinking, the way in which you think. Now, the illustration I've used is that most Christians are in a mess. A lot of, well, a lot of Christians are in a mess. If you're, if you're north of 15 when you get saved, your life's probably a little bit unhappy uh, it's not quite what you thought it should be, and you got saved. If you got saved like I did when you were six, it's not a whole lot to repent from, not a whole lot of problems because you're just a little kid. But when you get older, you, you mess up, and you figure out that you need to really rely upon the Lord, and so you have a sense of that anyway. But <clears throat> the way most Christians are is they, they've got a house that's just Disheveled. It's in shambles. The sheetrock's peeling off the wall. The paint's peeling off the wall. The, the hinges in the kitchen cabinets are breaking. Uh, the roof leaks a little bit. And um, uh, the house is settled, and it's a little crooked. And if you put a ball down on the floor, it's going to roll from one end of the house to the other. And they want, they want God to come and straighten it all up. The trouble is the Holy Spirit shows up with a bulldozer. And he's, you know, they just want him to come in and kind of, like an interior decorator, let's slap some new paint on the place and kind of straighten up a few things, fix up the hinges, straighten up the cabinets, and just do a superficial fix. But the Holy Spirit shows up with the bulldozer, and he wants to tear it all down, including your rotten human viewpoint foundation, and rebuild from the get-go. And most Christians, once they realize that's what the Christian life is all about, say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're not the guy I want. I want the guy who's just going to slap on a a fresh coat of paint and whitewash everything so it looks good. We don't want to really substantively change anything from the inside out. And yet that's what Romans 12, 2 is talking about, a deep internal renovation down to the destruction and replacement of the very foundation of how we think. And we'll get into that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. May we respond to the challenge that we are to be committed disciples, and that means that we need to be serious about the Christian life, be serious about learning the Word of God, taking it in and letting it transform us from the inside out. And, Father, we know that this is not easy, it's not a one-shot decision, it's not something that happens overnight, it's a decision that we have to renew every single day, every single morning, every single afternoon, and that we have to continue to put you you first and put your word first throughout the course of our life. And, Father, we just pray that, that we would be responsive to this challenge now, in Christ's name, amen.